Amen. Well, good morning, church. How are we doing this morning? Good. One of you. Perfect. Thank you. Very good. If you have your Bibles, why don't you grab them, open up to Exodus. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we have some on the back table over there, and you don't own a Bible, please uh, take that Bible, take it home with you, mark up uh, the Bible. It's yours. It's our gift to you. We want you to have a copy of the Word of God. And so we are continuing in our series of Exodus. Um, We're going to be in chapter 3. Like Jelana said, we're going to meet God, Moses is going to meet God in this chapter. He's been all over the place, but here God enters the picture in a very tangible and amazing way. But where we, if you've not been with us, let me give a quick recap to sort of catch you up. So, um, Exodus chapters one and two, uh, the, for many years, the people of Israel, the Hebrews, the Jewish people, God's chosen people have lived as aliens and sojourners in a strange land in Egypt. And they got there because uh, they had favor from Joseph that moved into this area that they were given this land to occupy. Uh, There was a new king that came into power in Egypt that did not know Joseph. And so uh, they were, the, the, uh, the Hebrews were then treated as slaves. And for many, many years, they were treated as slaves and put into harsh labor and the Egyptians dealt cruelly with them. And so now we're getting to the time where God's deliverance is drawing near. They have been living this life for years and years and years, many generations. And a Jewish child is born, we learn of, and his name is Moses. And he is providentially rescued uh, from this edict of death that was given down by the Pharaoh, and he's rescued by the most unlikely character, Pharaoh's daughter, the king's very daughter, rescues this baby boy named Moses, and he's saved. And he's saved, and he is raised in the courts of the Egyptian king. It's wild. And as an adult, we learned last week, as he grows up, he begins to see the affliction of his people. He begins to see how harshly these Egyptians are treating his people, and his heart burns uh, for justice. And it tells us in chapter two that he defends one of his kinsmen, one of the other Hebrews, by killing the Egyptian. And then he basically has to flee for his life to the land of Midian. He flees to the wilderness. And there he is married to a shepherd's daughter. And now Moses, this redeemer that we learned of, resides in the middle of nowhere, married to a shepherd's daughter, where he is a shepherd himself over his father-in-law's flock. So what's going to happen here? What's God going to do here? And after 40 years of wandering in this desert, Moses living a quiet life, tending to these sheep, 40 years. He was already in Egypt for 40 years. He fled. Now he's a shepherd in a Midianite desert for 40 more years. He's 80 years old. He's living this quiet life. And here, God appears to him in Exodus chapter 3. We've seen the sovereign hand of God leading and guiding Moses, bringing him to the exact place and time he needed to be. So if you have your Bibles, if you don't, it'll be on the screen, Exodus 3. We're not going to read all of it. I'm going to go through 1 through 15. Uh, Encourage you, 
just side note here, real quick. I, I was, Michael and I were talking this week. I go, I don't know how we can just preach Exodus 3 in one week. This is like an eight-week series here. So I feel very conflicted. There's so much in here. But we would just, it would take us nine years to get through Exodus. So my heart just wants, so I encourage you, just reread Exodus 3. There is so much in here. There's so many beautiful truths about the Lord, but we just can't take that long. So that's just side note here. Exodus 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb the mountain of God, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the lands to a good and a broad land a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent to you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And I'm gonna skip down to Exodus chapter four, verse one. And this is Moses' response to this entire interaction. It sounds about like my response. And then Moses answered, behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. 
So there's Exodus 3 in a nutshell. So thus far, what we've seen in the past few weeks is how God's sovereign hand has been stretched over his people in this foreign land. Now God was caring for his people God was protecting his people so that nothing would touch their lives that was outside of God's gracious purpose for their future. So what does that even teach us as we learn? Is that their lives were not easy. We know the bondage they were in. We know their cries for help. But that was exactly where God wanted them because he had a great purpose for them. He was molding them and he was shaping them into a people. So God has been caring for them purposefully in such a way that even in their darkest hours of their history, the hand of God was on his people. And he was leading them into the fullness of his design and his purposes for them to walk with God. And we saw that even in the midst of Pharaoh's evil designs, in this very place where we thought there's no way it could get any darker than that, even through that very situation, God was preparing his people, someone whom he would use to deliver his people out of this bondage, Moses. And so when we ended last week, Michael touched on this, uh, this immensely important principle of Christian living. That is that God was setting about and doing in the life of Moses was not primarily about Moses. This story is not primarily about his leadership. This story is not about Moses' bravery. It's not about all that Moses does. The purpose that God is showing us here was to labor in the heart of this man, Moses, that above all else, he would be distinguished as a man who loved God and wanted to be near him. It's a story of God working and moving. It's not a story of uh, just a hero that we should look up to. It's a story of God moving in the heart of Moses, that Moses' life would be marked by one that I want more of God. I want to be near God. I want to hear from God. And we'll learn later, like Jelana just talked about, that Moses grew in his intimacy with the Lord, that he talked to God as if talking to a friend. This is what God was doing in his life. And God was setting about in this life, uh, building a character in Moses that above all else was a character of him knowing and loving God above all else. And that's what takes place in Exodus. And that's what he's doing. He's shaping his character. And that's exactly what God does with us as we walk with him. He shapes us. He molds us. He takes all of our situations and he makes and he draws us to himself that we would be dependent on him, that we would hear from him. And it's about God's movement in our lives, not us conquering or figuring things out, but it's God moving and working in and through us. So Moses's great training ground, Moses's uh, great training ground that he was in the halls of the Egyptian court for 40 years, that was, that's just a blip on the radar. That's like chapter one, it's over. Moses' greatest need, Moses' greatest need was not whether or not he could lead the people of Israel, whether he could articulate the right thoughts, whether he had the right leadership giftings to do it. Moses' greatest need wasn't that. In fact, like we read in 4.1, he said, Moses didn't even think he could do it. He said, but behold, Lord, after this interaction at the burning bush, he said, they're not gonna believe me. 
They're not going to listen to me. They're going to say, the Lord did not appear to you. What we learn in Exodus chapter 3 is Moses' greatest need, and it is our greatest need, is that we are to know God. That's the real significance in the burning bush here in chapter 3. And it's important that we see its message. You see, up until this point, God is, he's mentioned, he's in, the, he's, he's in all the details of the story. God is moving, his sovereign hand is at play in every detail, but he's not been named in Exodus thus far. He has not revealed himself thus far. And here in Exodus chapters three, God intersects this narrative in a very real and tangible way. And so what we encounter here for the very first time in Exodus is God himself appearing to Moses. And he appears as a fire. The fire is a symbol of God himself. And it is a mega theme throughout all of scripture. God is constantly referred to as a fire or a flame. So fire in scripture, you could think of it as almost an, is God's emblem, as it were, right? For his presence to even his people, as we'll learn later, is a pillar of fire. His nature, the scriptures talk about, is a refining fire for us. It burns up all the dross in us and is to purify us. When he appears to Abraham, Michael touched on this last week in Genesis 15, when he makes a covenant with Abraham that he says, I will make good on, he appears as a fire. Listen to this, Genesis 15. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. His symbol is of a fire. And we're seeing the fulfillment of this promise made to Abraham in the life of Moses, and again, he shows up as a fire. Now, it's fire pit weather in Texas, finally, right? Anyone done a fire pit this week? Okay, never mind, I'll skip that story. Okay, no, guys don't like fires. Okay, it's cold out. This is it's fire pit weather in Texas, right? So you you build a fire in case in case y'all are wondering. This is perfect weather to go to Lowe's, get a fire pit, assemble it if you don't already have one, and you uh, you go and buy at H E B. They sell specialty wood, pinion wood, and it smells uh, like fall, right? And it's this beautiful, wonderful aroma. It costs a fortune. It's way too much money, but they capitalize on it because we only have cold weather for two weeks, and they know we're gonna buy it, right? So you put this in your fire pit and you burn it up and it's glorious and it's wonderful. And as I was thinking about, uh, I, I sat around some fire pits, I sat around some fires this week. It was providential that we're going to be in Exodus chapter three. And fire is this fascinating thing. Fire is one of the very few things that I can think of that is simultaneously inviting and horrifically terrifying. You know? It's like, I don't know what it is. You, 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 like, you get a fire pit, and I can just speak for the dudes. We can just sit around a fire pit, not speak to each other, and it's like entertainment. We don't have to say anything. We, we just watch it. 
right? And, and, and then we can leave and it feels like we had this great bonding moment. We said nothing to each other just because we were looking at a fire, right? So there's something about a fire that's so inviting. However, I do have four children and children do not, they've not developed that sense of terror yet of fire. It's just inviting. So they want to jump over fire. They want to throw things in the fire. They want to see what burns, what doesn't burn. And so you're like constantly as a parent terrified that they're going to fall into said fire, right? It just causes all this panic because fire is terrifying. We understand the destructive, terrifying force that fire is, but it is inviting and it's terrifying. And I don't think it's any coincidence that the Holy One, God himself, shows up as a fire consistently through Scripture He lands into our reality here in Exodus and Moses meets him and he does so as a flame. The God who is inviting, who we are drawn to, who we don't fully understand, but we wanna be near him. But at the same time, that's God. It's terrifying. Look at Exodus 3, verse 2. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Another side note, this one's free. I don't understand why we call it the burning bush because the whole idea is that the bush isn't burning. It's on fire, but it's not being consumed. It should be called the not burning bush or something, right? (laughs) Neither here nor there. We're still going to call it the burning bush because it just makes sense. I'm going to offend the church fathers, right? So here, uh, God is revealing himself to Moses in this flame of fire. So what was God saying about himself to Moses? Keeping in mind that Moses' greatest need, like we just talked about, is that he would know God. That's his greatest need. So what is God communicating here? What is he saying about himself by revealing himself in this way? We see at least three things we're gonna walk through. First is this. God is revealing to Moses that he is a living God. Now we say this this phrase often in church, sometimes tritely, sometimes we sing about it, sometimes we ourselves even say, but what, what, what do we mean? God is revealing to Moses here something of absolute fundamental importance, that God is a living God in the absolute sense that only he is life, that he is the self-sufficient one. He is the one that has eternally existed. He is the self-existent one. At this this, this point is made in the burning bush in this way. Every other flame, every other fire that you and I have encountered and seen needs fuel to have it burn. When I have my fire pit, you put wood in there and the fire consumes it, burns it up until nothing is left but ash. And that is the fuel by which the fire exists. Every other flame needs a fuel. And it burns to the degree of the fuel that is being used. 
What Moses is learning here, what Moses is seeing here as he turns aside, the scripture tells us, and he sees a fire and a flame that is on fire but is not consuming this bush, he is learning that the presence of the living God needs nothing to feed it but himself. He is self-sufficient, this God. He is self-sufficient. God needs nothing else outside of himself. It needs no fuel. It burns because God is all-sufficient in and of himself. He's revealing to Moses in the very real sense he is a living God in the absolute sense of the word. Now, um, the name that God reveals himself with to Moses in verses 13 and 14 implies the very same thing. Verses 3, 13 and 14, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? He's basically, he sees God. He's like, I need to name you. Who are you? I want to learn your name. And God says to Moses, I am who I am. He says, say this to the people of Israel. I am sent me to you. Now, that's a mysterious name, right? That's kind of a strange way of talking. But it speaks to us the very same idea of that symbol of the not burning bush, right? Is the eternal, living, self-sufficient God is expressed in this name. And other tra our translations later translated, Jehovah, I am who I am. Right? He says, and essentially, if you put God on one side of the equation, the only thing they can put on the other side is God again. It's I am who I am. I don't need anything else. I don't, I'm not dependent on anything else. I don't come from anything else. I am who I am. He is the only thing. This is, this is a consistent theme of the scriptures. He is uniquely living God. He's the only one who is alone, eternal, self-sufficient, everlasting, the same, and unchanging. The prophet Isaiah touches on this. In Isaiah 40, 25, he says, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And in him, who has no might, he increases strength. He is self-sufficient. All that comes from within him, because he's God. This is the unique glory of the living God. And the glorious fact, God is trying to get Moses to understand who he is by revealing this fact about him. And he's saying, Moses, it's on this reality that you're to build your life. And Moses, and this was God assuring Moses of who he was. Moses said, who should I say sent me? Tell them I am the eternally self-sufficient one who is life itself. And as Moses grew to know God more, it was this that he, became to, that he came to rely on. So God appears as the living God, but the second thing revealed to Moses here in the burning bush was that he was a holy God. He's a holy God. 
verse 5. This is as the Lord is calling out of the fire, Exodus 3, 5. Then he said, this is God speaking, this is fascinating, do not come near. Now remember, Moses had turned aside and he saw this not burning bush, which that's what struck him. Remember, he was a shepherd in the wilderness with his father-in-law's flock for 40 years wandering around this desert. He sees all these little bushes all the time and he turns aside. I'm sure he saw one on fire at some point, but this one was different. He turns aside and there it is, this flame of fire that's not consuming the bush and God speaks from it. Do not come near. Now, is God saying, you cannot approach me? No, I don't believe so. What I believe he is saying here to Moses is, you cannot approach me like that. In your state right now, don't approach me like that. Don't come near me as you are. Because he goes on, he says, how do we know that? Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, the thing that made it holy was God's presence there. That's why he had to unsandal his feet. Now, we could go into all the cultural implications of what that means, but essentially, this is sacred, holy ground. Unsandal your feet before you approach me. This voice comes from this burning bush. The presence of the living God is here, the eternal self-sufficient one in here, in all of his glory as a flaming fire and his holiness is there. He says, don't come to me like you are because you cannot approach God carelessly and cavalierly or thoughtlessly. And God says to Moses, for Moses' sake, and for the sake of the glory of God, don't come near me. And the question arises, I guess in my mind, I'm always like, well, what happened if he would have? And the condition that he was in. That's um, an answer for another day. But the reason that he's coming into God's presence, it's this infinite God this self-existent God and it should fill Moses with awe and wonder that he wouldn't approach him carelessly. That he would be almost, the, the, the term awe in the Bible, the awe of God is the same word used as the fear of God, that he would have a fear and reverence. Not I'm afraid of God, but I have a reverence because this God is holy. He is set apart. He is unlike anything I've ever seen or experienced. The holiness of God, the self-sufficient one. I need to unsandal my feet and approach him in reverence and in awe. And if I don't and I come carelessly, God looks and says, don't come like that. C.S. Lewis describes it in his children's novels, The Chronicles of Narnia, in a really beautiful way. I love these books. I've read them many times. Um, Mr. Beaver, if you know the story, is describing the lion who is this Christ-like character. He's describing this lion 
to Susan. And he says this, Aslan is a lion when he's telling him about him. The great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought that he'd be a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I think that's what's happening right here. Of course, that's an allegory. Should I approach this fire? Is he safe? I thought he would be different. Of course he's not safe, but he's good. So don't approach him casually. Um, Here's my application to this idea. I think what we do in our hearts and in our actions and in our minds before we gather as God's people to worship is a significant thing. Um, When we approach God in any capacity, the condition of our heart and the way we approach him is a very significant thing. Now, I'm gonna speak to just this day, the Lord's day. And this this is gonna be direct, I understand. But I think this is a word we all need to grapple with and we need to hear that the Lord wants to teach us about our worship. Coming into the presence of God Moses discovered that God said, don't draw near to me like that. It wasn't that God said, I don't wanna be near you. It wasn't that you cannot draw near to me. He's not saying that. But he's saying what you do before entering into the presence of the holy God, the maker, the sustainer, the creator, the holy, all-sufficient God, who is the very wellspring of all of life is of great significance. And that's something that we need to bear in mind even in our own worship today. And our own desire for God. What are we doing as we approach God? Now, it's a wonderful thing to gather in the church and to meet and greet. I'm not diminishing that at all. I'm not diminishing... uh, I'm having a really bad day. I need to come in and worship. Please do that. Don't feel uh, alienated to do that. I'm not diminishing uh, community and greeting one another and blessing one another in the Lord. I think we need to do that. That is biblical and that is right. But church, it is equally as important Come time when we are to meet with God, when we are to take his name upon our lips, or when we meet on the Lord's day to worship him and sing to him and gather in his name, that we would say to God before we enter into his presence, God, would you still my heart? Would you, would you make me expectant to meet with you? God, would you search my heart and know me that if there's anything that is not of you, God, I repent of it. I wanna come into your presence and I want you to be a refining fire in my life. I think that is equally as important. I think so often we can come just kind of cavalier and too casual. Oh, it's just kind of another deal. If I have time, I'll make it. (laughs) We're meeting with the living God who is holy and set apart and righteous. 
and he is a refining fire. May we posture ourselves in a way that says, you are God and I am not. And the fact that you would meet with me is a miracle I can't understand. God, I wanna hear from you. And we would have a reverence and awe and we would be expectant for this God to meet with us in a profound and powerful way. What we're doing in this place is holy. Not because I stand up here, not because Michael stands up here, or Zach and Jelana are super awesome at what they do. It is holy because God is, and we are taking his name upon our lips and declaring that this is his day because God covenants with his people to meet with us. Do we ever think about whose presence we're entering into? It's not a casual endeavor. And maybe we can learn from Moses' story. It's not just a simple look aside and go, but it's turning aside and seeing and then readying our hearts, unsandaling our feet to prepare to walk into the presence of the living God. Knowing that he is gonna move. Now, does this mean we cannot be on intimate terms with God? No. Moses, in chapter 33, spoke to God as a man speaks to his friend. You see, I think there's a cheap form of familiarity and there's a right form of familiarity. Moses had a familiarity with God that was based on the fact that I'm gonna unsandal my shoes when I approach you, God. He got to know God. He knew who God was, his character. He had reverence and awe, and through a life lived worshiping and honoring and being in awe of God, he grew to know God in a very intimate way, but it started right here. God is holy, and I'm unsandling my feet. And God drew him nearer and nearer and nearer and nearer as he grew in that realization and understanding of who God was. The final thing I want to look at before I'm done of what God was revealing to Moses in that not burning bush is that it was God's desire to dwell with his people. The living, eternal, holy God was dwelling there in the desert and his dwelling was in the midst of a farm bush in the wilderness. It was not some great, wonderful tree. It was not even a thing of beauty. It was a scrubby farm bush. It was probably considered even ugly. Like you'd pass by it, and you wouldn't take an Instagram picture of it today, right? Unless the not burning part was happening, of course but then you shouldn't take a picture. You fall on your face and worship a holy God, right? So it was this ugly thing, but the presence of God and the flame of his holiness and the glory of his being was dwelling there. The bush was so insignificant, it was not even asked to contribute fuel for the glory of God. He didn't even need the bush. It didn't even burn up. I don't need any part of you. I can reveal and display my glory all on my own because I am who I am. It was simply to be the place where God would take up his dwelling. In Deuteronomy later, maybe we'll get to that book after this, who knows, and just keep trudging along. God is spoken of as him who dwelt in the bush. 
Now, what he was saying to Moses is this, that God in all of his glory takes delight in making his dwelling in the common farm bush, in the common man, in the life of a man like Moses, and in the people of Israel whom he had chosen so that Moses, so that the people of God, so that even as God has saved and rescued us, might burn bright with the glory of God. That's the mystery and the wonder of the burning bush. Moses questions his ability to take this good news to God's people. He says, who am I? They're not gonna listen to me. Chapter four, verse one. And God says to Moses, it's not about you. But who I am dwelling and radiating my glory with my people in a way that I choose so that there will be no doubt who sent you. Church, we too are called by name, by God, through our great redeemer, Jesus Christ, for the purpose of letting his glory shine through us. Scripture calls us common vessels, but then redeemed for his good purposes by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, saved and called for his name, for the glory and purpose of God. Let's pray together, church. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in you is life, that there was no one before you, Lord, that you are self-sufficient and that you are the fountainhead. You are the, you have been, you have always been, you always will be the source of life. God, we also thank you that you are holy. And God, I pray that we as your people would always prepare our hearts to meet with the holy living God, knowing that you, when you show up, God, you move in powerful ways. And we wanna be a part of that. And Lord, we thank you this morning that you are a God who dwells with his people. And that because you are unchanging and because you are everlasting, you still today dwell with us and you made a way for us to dwell with you forever through our great redeemer, Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty of our sin because we could never approach you in your holiness, but now has washed us white as snow so that we now could be counted as sons and daughters of this holy, eternal, self-sufficient, everlasting good God. And may we spend our lives singing and declaring of your goodness forever and ever and ever to the next generation. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Church, let's stand and worship.